This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Melissa Fu, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah. Melissa grew up in northern New Mexico. Now, you know, I had to look that up. Oh, yeah, to see where New Mexico was. Mm -hmm. I knew where New New Mexico was because it's in the United States, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know where northern was and that there was a separation. Yeah, well, I I like to make the distinction because um, northern New Mexico is quite mountainous and uh, it's the southern, kind of the southern end of the Rockies. But the southern part of New Mexico is where it gets more like a little more deserty. And right. as I'm a mountain girl, I always have to say, no, I'm from the mountains, not the desert. <laughs> okay. All right. Then we'll talk about that. Um, she now lives near Cambridge in the UK. Melissa has an academic background in physics and English and has worked in education as a teacher and curriculum developer. Uh, Melissa has written for a number of publications and has published poetry. This is her debut novel. Peach Blossom Spring, beautiful title, beautiful cover. It's a sweeping historical um, story about war, migration, family, and searching for a place to call home. Now, I don't know how well you know the podcast, Melissa, but in search of um, identity and place, it's my favourite subject. Oh, great. I'm (laughs) pleased to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about you to start with. Talk to me about where you grew up. As I mentioned, I grew up in in northern New Mexico, up in the mountains, in a a town known as Los Alamos, which is a very scientific scientific community, uh, where the initial research was done for the first atomic bomb um, in the it was a secret city during World War II. Is that right? Why were you there? Were your parents there so, for a reason? Yeah, so I I grew up in sort of the seventies and eighties, and my father was an engineer with the lab, the lab as we would call it. And most families there were somehow uh, connected with the laboratory doing, at the time, it was a lot of defense research. As the Cold War ended, the research kind of broadened out to more scientific general research. Mm. And what kind of childhood would you say it was that you had? Looking, looking back, I think it was, and even maybe during, it was, it was quite a happy one. I mean, I think we had a lot of freedom to be outside. I spent huge amounts of time outside in the canyons, up in the mountains with friends, just unsupervised, (laughs) wandering, well, maybe supervised by a couple of dogs. Um, So there was a lot of space to play. It was quite sheltered in that, you know, we were pretty far from any large city. I've lived a lot of my life later now near near and in cities and I I don't tire of them I'm always still sort of fascinated by that flux or yeah constant flux and the intensity of people and, and population um 
which is even after all these years spending more time in cities or close by them than away from them still feels exciting and new. Mm. It's interesting you say that, you know, you, you're out there exploring. I mean, I didn't grow up in a, um, in a rural or regional area. I grew up in an inner city city. But it was back in the day where we were just, particularly in the school holidays, um, in vaca- at vacation time, you know, my mother would see us off in the morning and out we'd go, play on the street, play with friends, and we'd have to be home by dinner. It was, it's different. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, when we were looking for somewhere for us to live, um, so we now live in a village a little ways outside of Cambridge. And what I was looking for as we visited places was sort of feral children running around on their bikes or just because I wanted something like that. So, I mean, my kids probably don't have quite as much freedom, but I try to give them whenever they can, you know, if they leave, they come back at it later. Yeah, I want them to have a little bit, as much as possible, that kind of sense of independence. Although, like you say, it's not quite the same with no. phones. and <laughs> It's not quite the same at all. I mean, you know, some people even track their children on the phone. But anyway, so you grew up there. And what was the trajectory? What kind of led you to where you are now? Did you talk to me about your college experience? At what point did you leave that idyllic lifestyle? So I was desperate to leave that like lifestyle yeah. <laughs> when it was time to go to university. And I went to um, Rice University in Houston, so which at the time was the fourth largest city in the, in the country. And there I studied physics and English because you can do a sort of double major at American universities. And I've always been pulled between the arts and, and the sciences. I, I quite enjoy a, the regular. But is that an unusual double major, English and physics? I think so. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> although, you know, not so much for kids from my high school, because I think, well, we had an amazing, amazing high school English department with these, there were basically about five or six women who were incredible teachers. And the number of English majors coming out of our high school, I think, is an, a tribute to that, to those women. At the same time, being in a very scientific community, I think there was an expectation for most kids that you would do something technical. And at my university in particular, it wasn't too hard to do an English major and a, a science major, do a double. Uh, if, you, Like, for example, I just took one English class every term and I would want to do that anyway because I love reading and writing. And then at the end, I had a, a double major. So several kids from my town went to Rice and several did some kind of science and English major. <laughs> So you all took after your father. Like, is that what happened? What does your mum do? Well, there were three of us. So uh, she had her hands full. I had two elder brothers. And then eventually she went back to work. She didn't have a library job. She couldn't find a library job in, because Solomos was quite a small town. So she ended up also working for the lab, as they call it, um, working on an epidemiology project, actually. And um, various sort of part-time things. I think, you know, she she did a lot of, um, besides work, when we were at school, she did an awful lot of mom work in terms of taxiing us around, mm-hmm. supporting. Our what I was trying to get out with that question is where did the creativity come from? Was it mom or was it dad? You know, or did you follow the science oh. of, yes, that's where I'm going with that. Yeah, the love of reading definitely from my mom. I, you yeah. know, early on, I remember she would well, both of them really. I mean, but she was the one who would turn up with lots of books. I I learned to read very early, and she would she would give me 
books from the library or from friends. And then a little bit older, one of the things I would do with my dad on the weekends, I was still, you know, maybe primary school child. It was, um, we would walk to the library. It was about a mile and he would read the newspaper and I would get a huge stack of books. And then we would walk home and get ice cream on the way home. And it was such a ritual and it was such a, a treasured time. So yeah, I think I always loved reading. Writing was um, fun. I never thought that it would be like that I would write a fiction, you know, maybe I think, oh, that would be a dream. But I, I thought, no, I need, to, I need to be a scientist. I need to do something practical. And it wasn't until I tried being a scientist that thought, nah, and tried doing something practical like teaching, which I enjoyed a lot, but also thought that's not it. That I, that I finally thought, you know what, the one thing that I've always done, whether or not I've thought it was practical or whether or not I've been employed to do it was right. I've always just written in journals and just, it just as a way to make sense of the world. So I probably about 10 years ago, I, I thought, I'm just going to give this writing thing a go. I'm just going to. Give- I want to first find out what kind of scientist you were. My graduate work was in, as a physicist. I did condensed matter experimental physics, mm-hmm. and I was working with lasers looking at uh, renewable battery materials. So I did like, I really did enjoy the experimental aspect of being in the lab and having all this kit to, to work with. I, you know, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I couldn't quite picture myself making it uh, a career. So, so I eventually went into teaching physics after teaching some English. <laughs> so it's not a very straight trajectory at all. <laughs> it's not linear. Um, yeah. No, not at all. Uh, so I had always loved teaching, actually. And so I, I trained to be a, a secondary English teacher. That was challenging. It was fun. I think that I was, when I was doing it, I was of an age or maturity where it was so hard to hold and facilitate conversations that when I switched over to teaching science it was so much easier because I just I could just say no you're wrong because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost black and white isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 so at what point did you leave your homeland really um and why so this is an interesting question because I would say like my home homeland is New Mexico but I, as I said I was desperate to leave um at 18 but then you know after Graduates, undergraduate and graduate school, I, I found a guy and he might have been part of the reason I left physics. Well, a little bit. And I was following him. So he became my husband and he uh, he's also a physicist and academic. And we were doing a lot of moving around the States because he was as a, as a postdoctoral researcher. But it was after three postdocs that he was offered a position over here in, in England at Cambridge. So that's maybe leaving my bigger homeland of, of America. And that was um, about 16 years ago. Oh, wow. I, you know, I had, I had at that point a son and um, we thought, what an opportunity. You know, we thought if we didn't go, we, we'd always wonder what would it have been like. And interestingly, and this maybe relates a little bit to the book, as we told our family about this opportunity, our different families, we had two opportunities, actually, this one here in Cambridge, and then there was another uh, position that my my husband had been offered in the states, and most people were like, "Oh, well, you'll take the you'll take the position in the states, right?" And we were not well, actually. We're we're thinking we're going to go to England, and the only person who didn't say 
stay in the States. The only person who said, you need to go. This is an amazing opportunity was my father. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. this is very much his life and his trajectory. You take an opportunity and you go. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what your first impressions of a new the new country was because, you know, I often say this and I'm a, a frequent visitor to the United States. I often go to San Francisco and to New York several times and I've spent long periods of time there and I often say this is that we might speak the same language but that's about it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel that? <laughs> yeah. So I think I had actually spent a year in, in the UK as a as an undergrad during my, and, and that was the, the real shock as you described, you know, oh, we speak the same language, but that's, yeah. you know, what, what is it? Two countries separated by the distance of a common language. Yeah. <laughs> so I was bracing myself because I knew that it would be different. Landing in Cambridge with a young child in academic circles was almost in some ways a little bit of a soft landing to the UK because mm. yeah. the first few years we were, we really, we didn't meet any English people. Um, <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time with international, other, other international families at the university. Mm. And that happens. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that layer of Cambridge kind of reinvents itself every three years because people move on, you know, academics are here for a short assignment kids grow. So it was more when we, all of our initial friends went back to Belgium or Indonesia or Australia, you know, after everyone went home and we chose a village where we live now, that was harder. Um, Everyone was very nice in the village, but it was, it took some time, really Mm. took some time to make friends. But having kids was great because we, you know, started to make friends through my children's friends. And actually to this day, I'd say some of my closest friends are friends here in the village that I met through the children and they're really, really good friends, you know, just really can count on them. But it took time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So tell me about Peach Blossom Springs. So at what point did you start thinking about, I'm going to write some fiction? Then once you thought that, did you have the story ready? Were you searching for a story? How did that come about? I started writing fiction, well, I would say I started writing more seriously, I'd, I'd say about about 10 years ago. So we had been here six years. I had tried a variety of teaching jobs and they were of medium satisfaction, but not didn't really love them. I just thought, I'm going to write every day my notebooks. And at that point, I didn't have the idea for Peach Blossom Spring. I didn't really think I would do fiction. In fact, what I wrote about the most was New Mexico and um, the landscape there, memories growing up, this sort of idyllic childhood running around in the mountains. 
a lot of that writing took the form of maybe some short stories, even flash fiction, poetry. And this was sort of how I started to get into, as I say, finding my voice, or I would say more honing my craft and getting used to the idea of sending stuff out for publication and getting rejected. That's, you know, that's part of the whole process. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but as I, you know, as I went along, I noticed that the stories and um, essays that kind of got the strongest reactions from readers, whether it was writer friends or publications, they all seem to have little sparks of my father in them. Just he would turn up as a small character or I'd say something that, you know, there'd be some anecdote about him that would set off the rest of the story. You know, I just noted that, but that was still, I didn't, I still didn't have this big novel in mind. What happened was while we had moved here to the UK, my parents moved away from the town of Los Alamos. My parents uh, retired and they moved to um, Albuquerque, the nearest big city, which now I realize is not such a big city. Um, and they were a little bit happier there. And and my dad, by accident, grew some trees. And that's all I'll, I'll say. So not too many spoilers, but he grew some some fruit trees. And it was a really remarkable thing that he managed to get these trees to grow because he tried when we were growing up and he wasn't very good at keeping trees alive. So I wanted to write a story about that. I wrote the short story and brought it to some friends and they said, well, it's an okay short story, but we think there's more to this. I thought, right, if there's more to why I'm so amazed that some trees grew, then I need to think about why they didn't grow and who this man was. And that's when I started to realize this was a bigger project. I still didn't know if it was going to be fiction or nonfiction. I guess the deciding factor is I knew so little about my father's life. And he also volunteered so little that if it had been nonfiction, it would have been a very, very short, <laughs> very short book, maybe just, you know. Very, and I, I realized that by looking at what I knew of his life, which is that he grew up in China, eventually went to Taiwan and then to, the Amer to America for studies. By looking at his life and the people of his generation, I could build a story for myself that would explain, explain to me why those trees were so important. And then it was a story that I could share with others. Mm. And that working on that was probably about 2018. I remember very distinctly deciding 20, late 2017, I wrote this, the short story, and which had been boiling in my mind for a year. That's kind of how things, things take a long time for me. But it was January 2018. I just almost like a New Year's resolution thinking, right, I'm going to just get down 80,000 words by May, the nominal length of a novel, and see what it is. And it was that kind of creative commitment to a big project. I think that just opened up a lot of writing. Not that many of those original 80,000 words are the same that are in the novel, but it didn't matter. It was just that sort of whoosh of, here's a project that's actually bigger than me that I don't know where it's going. It's a little bit out of control. And it was a wonderful feeling to just have that momentum. Mm. Did you know how to write long form? Had you written long form? Had you did you have an old story in your drawer or had you practiced writing a novel before? No, no. <laughs> so I didn't know how to write long. I, you know, I've, I learned with that one, but I, I think I'll be learning with each one. It was just, I mean, I think before I, I thought, how could I ever write 
that many words to make a full novel. I think the closest I had come before was maybe 8,000 words, which is still really short, long, short story length about New Mexico and, and actually the wildfires there. And then I had taken that New Mexico story and, and slotted in a lot of other of the childhood stories, but the, to try to, so I think that other project maybe got up to about 25,000 words, but it's still, it was very much a s- short story collection that was, uh, that I was trying to connect through a, a theme of landscape, changing landscape and wildfires. Mm. But this is completely different. Let's talk about identity because we're talking about the identity of your dad and but also your identity. I speak to so many writers that live, say, Peter Carey, for example. I don't know if you know him, an Australian writer who lives in New York and he's lived in New York for, you know, 20, 30 years. But he identifies as Australian and writes about Australia, writes fiction about Australia. And I've come across that a lot, that even though um, writers have lived, say, in the UK, in, in England, like you have for 12, 15 years, you still write all the stories uh, largely set in your homeland. Talk to me about that. What do you think about that? Well, for me, I'm, I think I'm such a gradual processor of, of ideas and experiences, and that's what writing is for me, that it, I'm always looking to things that happened in the past because I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> What, what they mean or what, what the significance was. So things that are happening right now, I think are too close for me to be able to make a writing about, you know, I might write about them just trying to make, make sense, but I need that distance of time to be able to form a story. So in this case, that distance of time coincides with being uh, the geographical distance of being outside the US. But it may also be I think it was Hemingway, you know, he had to go to, to Paris to write about Michigan. and mm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. I think it also gives you a, a bit of a perspective on a place when you stand back and, and look at it with not just with different eyes, but having experienced other ways of living in the world. Then you, then you can start to see some of the assumptions you have made that you were making that you just thought were the way things were. All that being said, I'm hope my my next project may be taking place in England, which is absolutely terrifying to me. I mean, my <laughs> next writing project, but if, and it's a part of England I don't know, but um, that's where I'm kind of drawn. But I think that that absolutely terrifying bit is essential to the writing for me because otherwise I would be bored. Writing Peach Blossom Spring, I was I just thought it, I got to the point where if I wasn't feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be writing this, or this is, if my stomach wasn't slightly churning writing it all, then I thought, no, this is too comfortable. So we'll see what happens if I can manage to write something about a story that takes place in England. Also, mm. it's also historical fiction. So, mm. Mm. Just your path to publication. Did you know anything about getting published? Well, I knew about the sort of the experiences of literary magazines and that taste of publication, which is only a small bit. I think it's a really important muscle to learn what working with an editor, well, first getting the rejections, then working with the piece with editors to make something better, and the excitement of seeing your work, whether online or in print. I've had some experience of all of that. I think that's really at the core of what being published is. But when you move to having a whole book be published and having an agent and um, 
working with cover design and an entire manuscript. And that's huge <laughs> and um, really different. Uh, you, you don't lose that core of let's work with, with the words, but there's so, so many other factors and pieces which were thrilling to work with and to experience. How did you feel when you got published? When you you knew that it was going to be a book, yeah that that was that was amazing. I think you know we, I had had an agent for a few years, and she was someone who actually found me. So I was working. I had been working with her, and that that was what kind of the first bits of amazement <laughs> to have an agent. And so she was always certain that this was going to be a book. Uh, she saw a very very early. Um, synopsis and about 2000 words and she said no this is this is going to be a book and I want to sell it and I want to work with you on it so but I just it still didn't seem real um you know as getting closer and closer when we submitted it to editors and you know she said I'm sending it to these editors I just on the one hand I tried not to think about it on the other hand I was checking my email every five minutes (laughs) of course of course (laughs) um you know, she said, oh, we've, we've, we've got an offer here and I think it's the right offer. That all seemed so amazing and unreal. That was just before the pandemic really closed down everything um, in, in the UK anyway. It was March 2020. So it's a little bit, along with the unrealness of the pandemic, the whole process of editing and going through it felt, is this really happening? It was wonderful, actually, in a way, because I was immersed in structural edits for a year and I can imagine instead of being in 2020 and 20, early 2021, I was, in my mind, I was in 1940s China, you know, worrying about railways. And you could pretend because really you're locked in anyway, weren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think um, I still didn't call it a book. You know, for the longest time it was a project and then it was a manuscript when it was sold. And then it was, it was a draft. It was a manuscript. I think it wasn't until I held a proof that I said, ah, oh, now it's a book. It's a book. And then, so I still get, I think maybe I'll always have this. It's still a thrill if I, you know, look in a bookshop and I see that's my book there. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa Fu, we're out of time. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you too. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.